Yeah, so what we did for Energy Junkies, actually, we um, spoke with a lot of people also to see how, like the idea of the, the exhibition is that people understand the climate crisis and how energy production is related to this crisis and the different solutions that are uh, there, both for individuals and for governments, companies, etc. Mm-hmm. And we did some research and we found that if your exhibition has an unsustainable look and feel, an unsustainable design, then people will not take the message seriously. Hmm. So for this exhibition, it was really important to really make it as sustainable as possible because otherwise you will miss your target of what you actually want to reach with the exhibition. So there the design really highly impacts um, yeah, the way that people experience the exhibition. That was Lizzie Bacher, and until recently, she was the senior exhibition maker at Nemo Science Museum in Amsterdam. Nemo is all about interacting with science and technology in order to better understand the world around us, to make its visitors curious about the mechanisms that shape their lives. It turns out, exhibition design conveys a lot. Research carried out by Nemo found that if an exhibition has an unsustainable look and feel to it, ultimately an unsustainable design, then people won't take the message seriously. So it's important for them to work toward creating exhibitions that are as sustainable as possible. Right now, Nemo is focused on sustainability and the climate crisis. This year, staff came together to create the Green Team, a cohort dedicated to putting sustainability high on the museum's agenda. Among other things, this means creating sustainable exhibitions, reusing parts of previous exhibitions for future ones, for example. It also means helping to create exhibitions that talk about the climate crisis. Currently, they have an interactive exhibition called Energy Junkies, where you can make decisions about the world's energy system that will determine a more or less sustainable future. The idea is for people to understand the climate crisis and how energy production is related to it, and the different solutions that are available for individuals, businesses, and governments. So here she is, Lizzie Bacher. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska. And I'm Dr. Sandro De Bono. I'm a museum thinker from the Mediterranean island of Malta, and I work with museums to help them strategize around possible futures. And we'll be your hosts. In this Chattermark series, we talk to museum directors and knowledge holders about what museums around the world are doing to adapt and react to climate change. You are also part of the recently formed Green Team at the yes. museum. Yeah. The Green Team. I think that's a nice way how to describe it. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about this team, its role and purpose? Yes. So uh, in Nemo, we're really uh, trying to work on getting a, a policy on sustainability and the climate uh, crisis. So we're trying to think about how we can implement this in the right way. And since the start of this year, we formed a green team. 
uh, no, it's about eight colleagues throughout the entire organization. So we have managers, but also people that work in the restaurant and uh, myself, I'm in the green team. And here we're trying to kind of become a movement within the organization within the organization to put sustainability high on the agenda and also to um, kind of instigate change, especially in what uh, people can do within the museum. Mm-hmm. So maybe as one example, we have each month uh, Sustainable Tuesday, which sounds in English not so great, but in Dutch it's Duurzame Dinsdag, so that, that sounds better with two Ds. Um, and each of these Tuesdays we have a different action to kind of make people aware of sustainable options in their behavior. Um, so last month we bought these um, grabbers uh, that you can use to kind of pick up litter from the streets and we organized walks around the building to kind of clean up the streets and all of the litter that was there. Um, in a different month, we ordered uh, bags of seeds, flower seeds that are really great for bees and other pollinators. And everybody could take one of these bags of seeds and then plant it somewhere in order to increase uh, uh, biodiversity or, or make some spaces more suitable for pollinators. Mm-hmm. So this is the kind of things that we do. And we're also in conversation with the directors, for example, to just put sustainability high on the agenda. Mm-hmm. Okay. But did I get it right? You described this as a movement. Yes. A movement within an institution? How would that work? Yeah, it's um, like I said, we try to put the topic on the agenda. So it's not that we are the ones that are actually, um, for example, renovating part of the building in order to make it more sustainable. But we are the, the people that are trying to push the different departments into making this a higher priority topic, for example. So that's why it's kind of a movement. It's not. It's not. It's different from uh, the de- the departments that we have within the organization. Mm-hmm. Okay. What What are the possibilities then that you can endorse or that you can explore? Is it just you know recommending uh, a course of action, or can it be can it be something else? Um, it's also, it's recommending we're also researching. So for example, we had an intern that looked at the different, uh, waste streams that we have within the building and to see how we could, uh, make that better. And then we can use that input or give that input to the directors in, in order to make a decision on that. So that's, yeah, that's kind of the things that we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been fun to also be with a group of people that are like-minded and that all think that this is an important topic to uh, put forward within the organization. So in that sense, we're all still very positive and uh, energized in or in to, uh, to make this change. Okay, so you do see potential in, in this movement then, that it might grow mm-hmm. and you might foster um, a more, uh, let's say, a more consolidated agenda, more focused agenda from within. Exactly, yeah. Um, you, you are also responsible for the science studio, uh, for the science museum studio at Nemo. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the scope and purpose of the space, or as you describe it, the studio? 
Yes. Um, so since 2019, we've had the studio, um, which is a building nearby uh, Nemo. It's actually a former gymnasium. It's a space of 900 square meters. And within the studio, we're kind of doing an experiment on how to create playful interactive exhibitions and programs for grown-ups. And the exhibitions and programs that we do there are always about a uh, societal theme. So the first exhibition that we hosted there was about the future of food. Then we had a, an exhibition about big data. And uh, currently we have an exhibition called Energy Junkies, which is about the energy transition uh, and the climate crisis and how we can kind of change the energy system in order to become more sustainable. And currently I'm working on an exhibition that's about the future of aging. Okay. Um, and the yeah, that's kind of a, a summary of the studio. So for your job, how does Green Team decide on what to focus on? Um, well, currently we're like we're making an inventory on the different things that could be improved mm -hmm. uh, within the organization. So that's kind of how we're prioritizing it now. But in relation to my job, this is like. My job is really to make exhibitions and being part of the green team is something that I'm doing out of my interest and kind of as an extra thing. Mm -hmm. And the two are not necessarily 100% related, but the way in which I, um, the, way that in, the, the way in which I integrate sustainability in my job is to see how I can make the exhibitions that I produce more sustainable. For example... Uh, by making them circular, so by reusing materials from one exhibition into the next one, or uh, on the stories that we decide to tell within the exhibitions. So that's, but so I, the my role in the green team is different from my official uh, job at Nemo. Okay. Okay. And how do you think design affects how people encounter and remember an exhibition? Um. I think that affects it a lot. I think, um, yeah, so what we did for Energy Junkies, actually, we um, spoke with a lot of people also to see how, like the idea of the, the exhibition is that people understand the climate crisis and how energy production is related to this crisis and the different solutions that are uh, there both for individuals and for governments, companies, etc. Mm -hmm. And we did some research and we found that if your exhibition has an unsustainable look and feel, an unsustainable design, then people will not take the message seriously. Hmm. So for this exhibition, it was really important to really make it as sustainable as possible because otherwise you will miss your target of what you actually want to reach with the exhibition. So there the design really highly impacts um, yeah, the way that people experience the exhibition. Can you give me an example? And I, I don't think that you need to be specific, but um, can you give me an example of a bad exhibition? <laughs> a bad <laughs> exhibition in general? Or uh, yeah. Okay, well, I will... Uh, well, at Nemo, we really believe in the power of interactive exhibitions that are multi-sensory, where you can use your hands and your body. And mm -hmm. So I would say exhibitions that use a, really a lot of text, that would not be an exhibition in the way that I would make it. Um, 
but to na- <laughs> I don't think I'm going to name a specific one for now, but this is maybe a, a general no, description. You don't need to. You okay. don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think when you make a good exhibition, it makes use of different ways of engaging with the content. Mm-hmm. So either through different senses or with your hands or like a combination of storytelling methods. Um, I think if if an exhibition is not so good, then it just chooses one way or just text or just, um, yeah. Yeah. And something I just thought of is, you know, what have you personally learned about how people learn best? Because it sounds like that's something that you consider while putting an exhibition together. You know, you said that too much text can uh, be harmful to people's uh, experience with the exhibition and then also their ability to like absorb the content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's always because I think every person learns in a different way. So, for example... Mm-hmm. I'm I'm a visitor that doesn't really read really well. So, <laughs> uh, but I know that my colleague with who I make these exhibitions, she's a person that reads everything in an exhibition. So we already have completely different learning styles, mm-hmm. which I think is good because if we design an exhibition together, then you already have two perspectives alongside of each other. So I think it's important that you provide different ways of entering different ways of engaging with the the story or making their uh, use of different senses and especially also in a family museum making use of the social context so try to make an experience where people either need to work together or where it's a yeah it evokes conversation between two people or it facilitates parents to explain something to their child so i think mm-hmm. that component is also really uh, important for for learning. Yeah, I um my wife and I love going to museums and we love reading everything. Mm-hmm. So we might be similar to your colleague. Yeah. But <laughs> but at the same time, um you know, you spend anywhere between 2, 4, sometimes 6 hours in a museum depending on how big it is and how much they have to show mm-hmm. and if I'm reading everything, I'm probably only really absorbing like 10 to 20%. You know, there's no way that you can remember all of that. No, that's true. And I think, well, actually, when I make an exhibition, it's not my goal that people uh, remember everything that they read or everything that they saw, but that something was sparked uh, within themselves, that something... Mm -hmm. Um, that they didn't really notice before in their everyday world suddenly becomes noticeable. So, for example, with the exhibition that we had on big data, this is something that's happening all the time, that data is being collected um, from you, from your phone, or when you use your uh, payment card, or if you send an email, there's always data being collected. And the goal of this exhibition is not that you exactly remember everything that's in there, but that you have this new awareness of a way or a new perspective on looking at the way the world works. And I think that mm-hmm. that's for me personally, 
the reason or the, the way that I look at how I create an exhibition. Mm-hmm. How much do you think these exhibitions, the ones that you work on, mm-hmm. are commentary versus just putting these things or these subjects in front of guests at the museum? Well, we try always to show different perspectives within an exhibition. So it's not that we choose one. And I think then it would be more commentary. Mm -hmm. Um, We try to show different perspectives and let people make up their own mind. Um, Maybe sometimes, especially in the exhibition Energy Junkies, we have like a commentary on the visitor itself. So Mm -hmm. we have... uh, a part of the exhibition where we explain the climate crisis in different ways, uh, which is quite a depressing part of the exhibition. And before continuing into uh, the rest of the exhibition, there's a big box of sand and there's a sign that says you can put your head in the sand here or continue with the exhibition and try to see how we can solve this crisis. (laughs) So that that part is slightly commentary on the fact that a lot of people already know a lot about the climate crisis, but that not really enough is happening to to work on it, to make a change. Can you take us through through this exhibition? Yeah, of course. Sort of 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 a tour of a podcast tour of, 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 of energy junkies. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So energy junkies, it's about, um, we kind of, it's about the energy transition, but we chose the perspective of addiction in order to tell the story in a different way. So, um, when you enter the exhibition, you see this big, uh, red lighted tunnel with mirrors and it's completely filled with stuff, all this really, Uh, nice stuff that you would want to have and it's stuff ranging from uh, 100 years ago until now and this is called the tunnel of temptation and within this tunnel it's actually about all the positive things that energy brought to our lives so it's it's made our lives more comfortable by providing us uh, with uh, heating in our homes Um, it's made our life more convenient with all these different uh, appliances that make our um like the work you do in your house, more more quick or more easy. It's brought a lot of entertainment with televisions, computers, video games. Um, so when you're in this tunnel, you see all these different positive things that energy brought. And on the sides of the tunnel, there are uh, mirrors. So if you look in the mirror, you see these objects uh, being reflected infinitively. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get the feeling that it's an endless temptation and you want more and more and more of this stuff. And then you mm-hmm. exit the tunnel and then there's a, a big warning sign that says uh, uh, a not so nice message is awaiting you. <laughs> and you have to you have to choose the way you want to be confronted with your addiction. So you can either choose a soft approach, um, you can choose a really factual approach and you can choose the tough like the tough love approach Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um it's shown on three screens and when you start the screen on the soft approach it's uh like a really hopeful story where um the the narrator she says that um of course we've become addicted but there's still a lot of time and if we work together then we can actually still make a change Mm -hmm. 
And the factual one, the narrator is only sticking to the facts. And in the tough love, the narrator is really kind of done with humanity and says, uh, we've known this for so long and still not enough is happening. So we need to act now because time is kind of up. And we decided to let people make this choice in order to also make a reflection on their own stance within this crisis. So Mm -hmm. if you go for a tough love, or if you go for a soft approach, then maybe that says something about the fact that you don't really want to hear about the fact that this, this crisis is here. Mm-hmm. Or if you want this tough love approach, then apparently you're ready to really uh, get a full confrontation in order to make a change. Mm-hmm. And then so after this confrontation, you're, you see this box of sand and you get the opportunity to either stick your head in the sand or you can uh, continue with the exhibition. And then... The rest is kind of um, free flow, so you can choose which part you do first. And this is all about the different solutions that we can find for the for this energy addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so one part, for example, is um, the CO2 diet. So you go into this small room and there you can... Um, this is about like what you can do as an individual to make a change. Mm-hmm. And you get a budget of CO2 that you can emit in one year, which is half of what an average Dutch person does now. So you need to make choices uh, according to your behavior in order to stay within this budget. And we made it uh, physical. So we made a a weighing scale with on one side, a big heavy bag of with this CO2 budget. And then you have all these small bags of different weights that represent the CO2 emissions of different kinds of behaviors. So you start with um, choosing your diet. So do you eat meat? Do you eat vegetarian? Do you eat vegan? And then the the bag with meat, it's the heaviest bag. And then you need to make all kinds of different choices. So for example, how do you heat your home? Uh, What kind of power supply do you have for your home? How do you travel to work? Uh, How do you go on holiday? And each question has different bags in order to make a choice. And then you kind of compare what you do now with this CO2 budget and you try to, yeah, if you, for example, eat meat, you need to make uh, other sustainable choices in order to stay within this budget. Or if you want to make a a holiday that's a bit further with the plane, then you need to compensate that with, um, by, for example, going to work with your bike or walking. So this is kind Mm -hmm. of, it's like a balancing game in order to stay within this budget. Yeah. Mm. This um, box of sand yeah. that, that you've mentioned, have you seen anybody actually bury their head in it? Yes, uh, we actually, <laughs> and it really? was a bit, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But we actually within the box of sand, we also placed um, some glasses, like somebody actually did it. And we placed um, these uh, artificial teeth that uh older people sometimes have we also <laughs> put them in the sand okay. but actually during the opening of the exhibition we had a surprise visit by a politician from the european uh, parliament and when he saw the the box of sand he immediately put his head in so <laughs> oh. i'm not sure if we should be happy with that but it was a, a funny moment and i think we got a picture of that as well <laughs> <laughs> While you were working on that exhibition, Energy Junkies, mm-hmm. how much did you and your team reflect on your own consumption? 
Yes, a lot actually. We uh, when we started the project, we made a pledge uh, on what part of our behavior we would improve in order to be more sustainable. Mm-hmm. And we um, we for- we also formalized it. So um, I think one member of the team said that during the whole development of the project or of the exhibition, she would not buy new clothes, only secondhand clothes. Uh, People said they wouldn't fly during the development of the project. Um, I'm not even sure what I pledged. Uh, I think that I I, I remember that I would uh, leave my heating off. Okay. But that was the year that I moved to a house that was really poorly isolated and at one point it was 13 degrees inside so i have to say that i broke my pledge (laughs) i have to confess but um we also made a book where we all told about our experiences with these pledges and that book is also part of the exhibition so visitors can read uh how we like what we pledged and how we experienced it okay so would you consider this type of exhibition uh, approach or concept uh, and the values that you are um, working on and the way you present them to your to your publics would you consider this exhibition as a good example of your house style because the way you were talking about museums does seem to suggest that you have a, a very particular way how to work on exhibitions and the type of, of, of narrative that you, that you present to your, to your public. Is that, is that so? Yeah, I think so. The, but the thing with this one, because we, of course, we always take the science as, a, as the starting point from all of our exhibitions. And also with the big data exhibition, we did, we did the same, but Usually the science has like different sides to show of a different of a certain theme. So with big data, mm-hmm. you can show all the benefits, but there's also downsides. But in this particular exhibition on the energy crisis, the science is super clear that mm-hmm. this crisis is happening and we need to make a change. Mm-hmm. So that was also the the perspective that we followed. We didn't say like there are also people that say that this is not really happening because we are a science museum. We we stick by the perspective of science so in that Mm -hmm. sense it was maybe i wouldn't call it activist but it was really our conclusion was clear about what needs to change and i think usually we are a bit more open Mm. correct me if i'm wrong but i i feel like a lot of stuff you're talking about um transformative experiences uh, your experience with an exhibition, the museum Nemo's kind of mission statement, it it all, um, at least to me, might come from like a personal place. Mm-hmm. And, and I was thinking, you know, what do you think was one of the first things that helped you change your perspective on the world? Uh, that's a good question. Well, mm, actually, it's I. When I was a child, I visited Nemo. So, in nineteen ninety seven, I was six years old, <laughs> and I was actually the the target group of the museum. So okay. I remember I remember going there as a child and interacting with the different exhibits. And I think that that was also as a child, it's a way of learning that you 
don't really experience anywhere else. And you understand that it can be fun to discover new things or to interact with scientific themes. Mm -hmm. So I think that influenced uh, me personally. Also, yeah, maybe that also was like the first idea of that. This is a field that I would like to work in. Mm -hmm. No, no, that's that's a very interesting um, way of looking at things. Since you you did experience firsthand the museum that you would be later working at. Yeah. So, would your would your perspective as a child of this museum match with your ambition as an exhibition maker today? Yeah, I think it matches because, of course, I really liked going to Nemo as a child, and it. I think it sparked my curiosity about the way that the world works and the fact that science is a, a way to understand the world. And in the end, I chose uh, a scientific study as my uh, education. So I did biology. Yeah, I think at, in one way or another, it contributed to um, how I saw the world. And that's something that we still do with our programs and exhibitions. I know this is taking it back to six-year-old Lizzie, and I understand if <laughs> if maybe you don't remember that far back, because yeah. I know I have trouble remembering that far back, but do you remember the exhibitions or the feeling that Nemo gave you when you were that age, you know, that that helped you shift that perspective? Um, okay, let me channel <laughs> my six-year-old version. Um, I think the fact that kind of when you are in Nemo, you're kind of in charge as a child of your own path throughout the museum. So you can just follow what you find interesting and then engage with that instead of being directed on the different themes or topics that you have to engage with, which is more on the part of formal education. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's something that I really also liked as a child. So, and you see all these real phenomena. So I, that that's an exhibit that we still have with uh, soap bubbles where you can uh, make a ring of soap bubbles and stand inside of it. And you see all these beautiful colors or mm -hmm. there's a demonstration, uh, the chain reaction that we still have, which is like a huge, 
uh, installation that also reaches up uh, on four floors. So it goes up really high and then goes low and all these funny things are happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think these are different parts that really um, stuck to me. But I don't know if that answers uh, your question. Yeah, I think it does. I think that... um so many museums have have areas for children and it seems like it's very textile you know it's mm -hmm. very um you know you're interacting with it with you know your hands and you know your your body in some way which like we said earlier is uh for some people a much better way to learn than sitting there and reading mm -hmm. and and i think that maybe that that way for children is a really good introduction to science. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so too. And also the fact that exhibits that we produce are often open-ended. So there's different ways of, uh, of results that you get by interacting with this exhibit. So... That also makes it interesting. I think it's more than just pushing a button and seeing something happen. You really have to create something or engage with it in different ways. Lizzie, I wonder what excites you, you know, with the museum, with, with Nemo. Like when you come in on a Monday, mm -hmm. <laughs> <you know? laughs> what excites you? Uh, on a Monday, a, a cup of coffee, I think. <laughs> That's the first thing to excite me. No, I think what excites me is that, I mean, Nemo is it's, it's well known throughout the Netherlands. And I think what excites me is that every day you can see these visitors that are really engaged or that are working together or doing something. And that, that's really nice. To see, because if you if you're working on something for so long, you sometimes forget about the fun that people actually have with the final product. And then mm -hmm. by going into the museum every day, you see all these people engage with it. That's something that that makes it really um, exciting. Because in the end, of course, we we are a science communication institution, so our role is also to to communicate like current sciences. But in the end, we are. A place for the public so that's that that's the people that we're doing it for in the end and i think that mm -hmm. that's also the part that excites me the most mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so dutch climate policy focuses on reducing greenhouse gas emissions so the climate does not change so rapidly and radically mm -hmm. and the temperature rises is limited and parallel to reducing greenhouse gases the Dutch government takes measures to adapt to the effects of climate change, for instance, by taking measures to prevent flooding and protect freshwater supplies, to reinforce dikes and dunes, and to manage heat stress in cities by planting more, more vegetation. How does Nemo's vision relate to this, since you're a Dutch museum well known in the Netherlands, but also given that you are not a state institution in the strict sense of the term? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so actually um, within the exhibition Energy Junkies, we show these three different directions. So we show solutions in the category of climate adaptation, climate mitigation, and um, uh, also, uh, for example, um, capturing CO2 from the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So that's in, in the part of telling the story. But actually, 
in the coming years, we're going to renovate our roof. Um, So we have like a a rooftop exhibition um, that's made mostly with concrete steps. It's it's a slanted roof. Um, And we're going to renovate it and then replace the concrete with wood. So that's bio-based and it it captures CO2. So that's good. And we're going to make a really large part of the roof a green roof in order to... um, yeah, to increase biodiversity, but also on the part of climate adaptation to create kind of a green zone within the city that hopefully has less heat stress. So we, in that sense, we're yeah moving also on that direction. I think we implement yeah I think we implement both adaptation and and mitigation strategies. Okay, so in a way, the science uh, you also mentioned that as a as a as a science museum, it's the science that guides your your vision and your objectives, right? Mm-hmm. But then the science, in a way, is also in line with national policies. You don't see a disconnect here. No, not not currently. No, I think the science would want policies to move a bit faster than they are moving currently. Okay. Um, but the fact that that there are policies on climate change and that there are measures on adaptations and mitigation that that follows the science. I think. Yeah, and you do mention a couple of, of very good examples of what you do and what you plan. What about sustainability? Um, uh, for example, are your exhibitions um, sustainable? Yeah, so we, I'm, I work on temporary exhibitions uh, which is already uh, less sustainable than permanent exhibitions because it mm-hmm. means you need to produce something new every year. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, for the Energy Junkies exhibitions, we also uh, had the idea of not making an exhibition and just making a single sign that says we wanted to create an exhibition, but that would cost this much CO2. So we decided just to make the sign and leave it on that. But of course, we also want to offer something fun to our visitors. So we moved away from that idea a bit fast. But um, in the exhibitions that we're making or that I'm working on in the studio, we're uh, trying to make them really circular. So for Energy Junkies, the builder that we collaborated with, which is Fiction Factory, they looked at materials that they used in exhibitions in different museums in Amsterdam. And then they knew that uh, at the period where Energy Junkies would be built up, then that other exhibition would close. So they knew that they could take materials from there into our exhibition Mm -hmm. instead of producing something new. And as a basic structure for Energy Junkies, we used scaffolding, um, like the the scaffolding that you use when you construct a, a building. Okay. And... And we decided that this is now, this will always be the structure for exhibitions that we produce there. So um, we bought this material and we will reuse it every year in order to um, make it more sustainable. Okay. And I think also we try to work uh, mostly with uh, companies that are close by. So we mostly work with companies that are only in Amsterdam in order to limit the travel movements during the production of the exhibition. I see. We're also learning a lot from this approach now because we, with Energy Junkies, everything made 
sense because like I said before, the design or the sustainable design of the exhibition supported the story that we wanted to tell. So okay. um, it was like a synergy, like the design then uh, strengthens the story. So now we're working on a new exhibition with a completely different theme, the future of aging, but still we want to make it circular because this is a, it's, it's an important value for Nemo. But okay. here making a sustainable design doesn't necessarily support your story because it's just, it's, it's, it's a good policy, but it has nothing to do with the story that we tell. So there we're already running into like getting the designer on board or sticking to this value. So not forgetting it along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we're really learning, uh, a lot on this, um, yeah, on this way of making exhibitions because it's kind of, yeah, it's a new way of designing it and building it. You've talked about designing exhibitions in a circular way. Are you talking about physically circular or maybe existentially circular? Uh, really physically circular. Physically, okay. Yeah, so in the materials that we use. So we're trying not to... Of course, we can never uh, fully use only only second-hand materials, but where it's possible, we try to not create new materials, but use something that's already there. Okay. Okay, so in a way, you also have, have savings from a financial point of view. Mm-hmm. But the end objective is, or at least it is not just savings, it goes beyond savings as well, because it's all about sustainability. Exactly. Is that is that the approach? Yeah, so the savings, that's a, a side effect. But the, the goal of uh, reusing materials is the sustainable part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it, it's not really saving a lot, because you need to deconstruct things and reconstruct them in a different way. So mm-hmm. you sometimes need to spend a bit more time. And of course that also has a a price tag. So yeah, sometimes you save a bit from reusing materials and not, but not always, Mm -hmm. I would say. What do you think is the most interesting or one of the most interesting materials that you've had to reuse? Um, Well, we used a lot of uh, wooden pellets we used a lot of those for the design and we used them in a lot of different ways. So we stacked them in order to make tables, but we also uh, clad them with a kind of textile and then you don't even see that it's pellets or uh, I think that was an interesting material. And we will, um, in the next exhibition, we have a residency for students and then we will use those pellets to create a new kind of working space for students where they can kind of explore a topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by stacking them or putting them together in different ways, you can actually get a variety of shapes. Yeah. And do you feel that you have an advantage in thinking about sustainability the way you are handling it because you're a science museum? Or do you feel that other museums, even if they are not strictly within the science um, group of of museums or the science uh, museum ecosystem uh, can also do this. Is this is it is it possible? I think um, actually every museum has to do this or has to start doing this. 
Um, there was recently a report also by the, um, the Council of Culture directly translated that that's all about how the cultural sector can be more sustainable. And that's not just for science museums, but it's for, for every kind of cultural expression. So also theater or festivals okay. and museums, art museums, cultural museums, that um, it's a sector where a lot of things are made or produced. So that's comes with its impact. And this report really clearly stated that we that this whole sector needs to rethink the way that we produce in order to become more sustainable. Because mm -hmm. I think officially in 2030, we need to be at half of the emissions. Uh, um, so that's eight years or seven years ahead. So we cannot keep going the way that we're going. So I think every kind of museum needs to think about how they produce their um, exhibitions. Mm -hmm. And there was actually uh, at the the Tropen Museum in uh, also in Amsterdam, they had an exhibition about plastic. It's more a cultural museum. Okay. And there they also made a really circular approach. So it's not just, uh, it's not only the science museums, I think. Mm -hmm. This is a little off topic. Okay. From what we're talking about, <laughs> but I read that Nemo hosts a show, hosts a comedy showcase about climate change. Yes, that's true. <laughs> How do you think comedy can help us understand climate change? Well, I think it helps in the sense that um, people are like this is. It's it's a it's a story that people have to hear a lot of times, and I think some people are growing a little bit tired of hearing this story, and they don't want to hear it because it's only depressing and it's it's not nice, and uh, people don't want to change. And I think the power of comedy is that it makes you, it's fun then actually to engage with the topic. So also during this, we had a uh, four stand-up comedians mm -hmm. um, that all made jokes about the climate. And it was really, it was really a nice evening, and there it was uh, also sold out. So apparently, a lot of people were interested in uh, going to a stand-up show about about uh, climate. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's a new way of engaging with the with the content that hasn't been used a lot, and it doesn't give you this tired feeling of uh, oh god, here we go again. Yeah, the climate yeah. crisis. <laughs> I've heard about it so often now. <laughs> Besides comedy, have you seen or experienced any other effective ways of talking about climate change that maybe people are willing to listen to because it's not accusatory or it's not doom and gloom? Yeah, I think um, there are examples from art or from speculative design that are, I think people like it when it's the story is not necessarily about the problem, but about a different way that the world could look like if we solve the problem. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what art or, or speculative design is really good at to shape these future uh, views. I think that that's a good way of talking about this story. And another way is actually that we, that, that's a, another program that we hosted also in the studio was a, a theater play, but it was an interactive theater play which was about, like in Amsterdam, there's a policy that uh, all houses need to be free from uh, gas. So everything needs to become electric by 
a certain year. And the theater play was a fictitious uh, meeting at a, com a community center with, uh, within a neighborhood where neighbors were discussing the consequences of this policy. Mm -hmm. And I think it showed different perspectives also of, of citizens regarding this topic. And it invited spectators of this theater show to join the discussion. Mm -hmm. So that's also, I think, a nice way to, yeah, to, to show this story or to involve people in the topic because it evokes also empathy for the different viewpoints from different people. Mm -hmm. And they can probably identify with some of those viewpoints too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What do you see as Nemo's role in its community? That's a good question. I think because the like Nemo's community is almost like the, the whole of, of Netherlands because it's such a well-known museum. So mm -hmm. um, I think what we try to do is, but I'm also talking a little bit outside of my expertise here, but what we try to do is to increase, for example, science capital. So also for people that maybe from their direct environment are not so likely to engage with science or to be um, to have the opportunity to pursue a kind of education, there we try to give people um, yeah, some starting points in order to engage with science and otherwise maybe they would not. Mm -hmm. um, that's maybe a bit of a fake response, but I'm not <laughs> sure how else to answer. <laughs> From what I've seen, a lot of museums around the world make their social media posts in English. And I went through Nemo's social media and I noticed that it makes their posts in Dutch. Mm -hmm. How do you think that affects the perception of Nemo? Well, I think that it really is a Dutch museum. We have a lot of tourists that come, um, but in the end it is a Dutch museum and it's also really directed at children. So I think if we would make our social media English, then children wouldn't feel like it's their museum. Well, mm -hmm. Nemo, is, it's really a museum for them. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, um, yeah, that's an effect of making it Dutch, I guess. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's important to tailor the museum's vernacular or its language based on the language, morals, and values of the community in which the museum lives? Um, yeah, I think that's important. But like I said before, it's Nemo is such a huge museum. So in that sense, of course, there are programs for the direct community, but people from all over the country come to the museum. So I think that that's kind of also the language that we use within the communication. Mm -hmm. Okay. But wouldn't you consider that being bilingual, for example, would ensure that your message, your projects are even better known and more accessible? Yeah, so the website, I know it's, it's bilingual um, and within the museum, everything is bilingual. Okay. And actually, we're doing an experiment now. Um, it's part of a research project where we we have um, like a summer exhibition where we actually 
we have it in seven languages. I see. So okay. there, yeah. So there's Dutch, English, Spanish, French, German, Turkish, I think. And forgive me, I don't know the last language from my mind. <laughs> but we're researching on how um, how visitors perceive or how they experience the exhibition because these different kinds of languages are there. And I already heard that, for example, there was. Um, I think one visitor with a Turkish Turkish heritage. It was like a, a small boy and he saw that the text was in Turkish and he said, hey, they also have it in this language that's from my family. So he was really feeling at home because this language was there. So yeah, in that way, offering multiple languages makes it more accessible, I think. Mm. Yes, the, the way that you've de you've been describing all that is happening at Nemo uh, gives me the impression that you're a very dynamic museum, mm -hmm. always looking at new possibilities, uh, constantly in flux, rethinking, looking at new possibilities. I like that. Yeah, that's I also that's something that I personally also really like. So uh, that's it's a nice place to work. So going back to that six-year-old Lizzie yeah, <laughs> being enamored with Nemo, excited about design and science. What do you think she would think about adult Lizzie and the work that you do now? I think that she wouldn't believe that I would work at Nemo, that she would be completely <laughs> amazed. Like, because actually that's, I was discussing that with, some of my colleagues that that's really nice. If you talk to new people that you're meeting and they ask, uh, what kind of job do you do? And you say, well, actually I work at Nemo. Mm -hmm. And everybody goes, oh, you work at Nemo. Oh my God, that's amazing. How fun. And <laughs> everybody, because it's, it's a place that everybody remembers. Like I said, either from their childhood or from, from visiting it with kids. It's such a positive, playful space that people... Yeah, they really like it. So I think also six-year-old Lizzie, if she would know that I will be working for Nemo in the future, then she would be really, really proud and amazed that that that, that would be in the future. Yeah. Well, Lizzie, that's all the questions we have for you. All right. Thank you for, you know, spending this time with us and also teaching us about Nemo. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Good. I, I hope it was a bit, uh, I could answer it a bit clearly because some of the things are not fully in my, uh, in my expertise, but I tried to explain as good as possible. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. Mm -hmm.